everybody, and welcome to the classroom. How you guys doing? This episode's going to sound a little bit different. Uh, we are both sick with coronavirus, so we're back at home for this recording. Uh, sorry, Once again, sorry for the drop in quality. However, not much we can really do. We want to protect the uh, people we work with. <laughs> yeah, a little late for us. Um, but... Uh, he's giving us, given us plenty of time to uh, devolve as humans. <laughs> there we go. We're both <laughs> sleeping late. Uh, I'm slowly losing my sense of taste, but it's not quite gone yet. So. Uh, I just got mine back. <laughs> oh, nice. I've been testing with this like little handy can of Altoids here. Just like, let's see, how, 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 how terrible is this on my mouth? Uh, not quite bad. Okay, okay. <laughs> well, I know I told you off mic about me unintentionally eating hand sanitizer yeah. and not realizing it. <laughs> the, uh, the day I got diagnosed with it, I, I put hand sanitizer on and I forgot about it and started chewing my nails. I was like, huh, that's weird. That's a weird like texture sure. on, in my mouth. What is hand sanitizer is the answer. <laughs> yeah, no, anyhow. <laughs> We are not here to talk about our COVID problems. Um, we're both fine. I would like to add that asterisk. We are fine. We're both fine. Um, what we are here to talk about is the final book in the first five Percy Jackson, which is The Last Olympian. Yeah. What's, give us your opinions. Uh, <laughs> after you die on camera. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. My opinions on this book. Um, I actually, I actually really enjoyed it. I, uh, this is, I think this is one of my favorites. I'm not quite sure. I'm going to have to think about my rankings a little bit, but this is at top, like top two. These, this is top two out of the five I've read, I've read so far. It's, uh, I enjoyed it quite a lot. I think that the twists that happened weren't like super televised. So like I wasn't expecting them to happen, but I also didn't feel like, like dissatisfied when they came up. I liked Selena as the character. I liked that they were built on. I liked that they had the guts to kill off a decent amount of characters. I, I don't know why I liked Ethan Nakamura so much. I thought he was fun. I, I liked what he did. So I, I enjoyed his the whole thing that happened with him. Um, I liked that Percy sort of turned down becoming a god. Although I feel like that would have been cool either way. Uh, but whatever. Well, and there's a little bit of the parallel too to Annabeth not joining the hunt. Yeah. I think I think they drew that in uh in that chapter. I I, I liked that. I thought it was sort of, sort of fun. The I, I don't know. I like I know that it's a little weird, but I do like the somewhat romance that blossoms before before Anna Beth and Percy. I think it still feels a little friendshipy. Mm -hmm. But I I did enjoy the relationship nonetheless. This was one of like their end scene is one of my favorite like in scenes like coming together of a relationship and like all of literature it's one of not mm -hmm. all of literature but obviously in like my YA consumption it's just so yeah. sweet also the the fact that here's Annabeth fresh out of battle but she sits down with Tyson to make a cupcake <laughs> for Percy it's just so wholesome I I loved that Tyson got his chance to shine too. I know I know you said people aren't the keenest on Tyson, but I really like the fella. I don't know why. More He's peanut fun. butter. He, 
before peanut butter was fun, I liked that he, like, I guess he grew up was what they said. Is he always that tall or can he just do that? I have no clue. <laughs> okay. I think, like, I want to say he can, like, kind of control it. Like, how the gods can control, like, what okay. they uh, that, that makes that I'm makes sense. not for positive, though. Okay. I'll take your, I'll take that with every ounce of your, your sentiment. <laughs> That's not true. I'll cry. Um, <laughs> Weep right now. Um, <laughs> so of course we'll go ahead and get started. A lot happens in this book. In quite not, a lot, yes. In not a lot of time. Like, like the book itself is pretty lengthy. I think this is like probably the longest book in the series. I think. I think so. It feels like one. that at least. But it only happens on like the span of like four days. <laughs> like, Blackjack lands on the hood of a Prius. And then, like, a week later, Percy prevents the world from ending. Mm-hmm. Um, Ooh, that was one other thing, uh, opinion-wise, that I wanted to say real quick. I forgot. Mm-hmm. Battles are a lot better done in this book. And uh, I, think it's because... I feel like he has learned a lot since the series started. Uh, there were only, like, there was, like, one time in specific that I think that I was, like, I don't really know what's going on, which isn't great still. However, right. it's a lot better. Like, I think that also goes for that a lot of this book is a battle, or at the very least, like, yeah, that's what I was battles. getting ready to say. Is I think it's the fact that the, the battle takes up three fourths of the novel, yeah, Which, like, he's got a lot of pages to do the battle. And I think that I think that worked well with this book. I don't think I'd like to see that, like, every single book is like that, but I do think that it. it it fit with the tone that he was trying to set up and, and it fit with the culmination of all the books leading into this. I agree. Um, so we'll go ahead and kick off with our usual kind of reading through. Of course, it starts off with I go cruising with explosives. Like I said, it starts off with immediately uh, Percy and Rachel are in um, Paul's Prius. Black Blackjack touches down. He's like, hey man, let's scoop him and specifically Beckendorf. Um, they hop onto the Princess Andromeda, uh, figure out how to blow it up. Um, and of course, after they manage to get all the things kind of set up, they do a little bit of a trick to the to the monsters there. Um, and uh, Beckendorf is actively getting choked out by a monster. And he just tells Percy to leave, to run away. The boat explodes. Beckendorf is obviously dead. Uh, but Percy ends up getting thrown to his kind of father's palace um, after some dreams. And I met some fishy relatives. Uh, yeah, so uh, as, as Haley said, in um, I met some fishy relatives, uh, Percy kind of just is floating in the sea, getting pulled away, uh, has a whole bunch of dreams and prophecies, uh, basically all just like Kronos' army is coming, get ready because stuff's about to go south real quick. Um, he gets he gets pulled into Poseidon's uh, sort of castle slash kingdom. Uh, Tyson's there. He's, he's working on the, uh, the forges he's actually fighting, uh, which is a, f- a fun turn of events for him. Uh, and he's told, uh, and then uh, Percy gets to meet with his father. He's very like worn and haggard uh, because his domain is like actively getting fought by the sort of titan of the sea. 
what's his? What's that? What's that fool's name again? I have no clue. <laughs> I uh, he's getting. Him. He's getting fought by the sort of uh, Titan of the Sea, uh, and he's getting uh, attacked in his own kingdom. So he's not really able to help with uh, the rest of the stuff going on in Olympus. Uh, and then Percy's like, "Well, are you are you going to help out?" And he's like, "No, I can't really." Uh, just be careful. That's why I saved you. That's why I brought you here. Watch out. Stuff's going to go haywire real quick. And then Percy gets shot off back to camp, which leads into I get a sneak peek at my death, chapter three. And in this chapter, of course, Percy breaks the news to camp that Beckendorf died. Um, he immediately is greeted by the Stoll brothers who just realize almost immediately what's happened. Um, we see a very distraught Selena and kind of Clary's trying to care for her. Um, and then at that point, Chiron realizes it's time for Percy to hear the prophecy that we have been, been getting in, in bite-sized kind of assumptions for the, a couple books now. Um, the Oracle doesn't tell it to Percy. Rather, it is in the, in the little necklace that the Oracle has had this entire time. <laughs> Percy gets a little mad about it. He's like, you mean to tell me I've been in here so many times and it was just right there. Um, but um, we get Percy kind of reading it out to the war council and um, more conversation about the fact that there is a spy at camp. Um, because obviously the spy was the reason they were able, um, they, Kronos knew that Percy and Beckendorf were on their way. Um, and I want to say that's about it in that chapter. Um, we learned that the gods are in the West fighting a, um, a force of Titans that are moving East to Olympus. So they are leaving kind of Olympus without any protection. And uh, there's a little bit of fear that this, Annabeth, I think, has the remark. She's like, doesn't she, don't they realize that this is a trap? Um, but uh, that puts us into chapter four, We Burn a Metal Shroud. Uh, so, uh, oops, my brain died there for a second. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Um, so Percy starts off, he has a dream about Rachel. Uh, basically just a, a little bit of family troubles uh, and a slight foreshadowing for later, but nothing that important right now. Um, then uh, we see that uh, Percy and Annabeth are sort of going through the motions at, at camp, sort of everything feels a little bit off. Uh, everyone's like a little bit sad. Um, we, we see that uh, people are sort of grieving. We see that there's also a little bit of a fight between the Aries and Apollo cabins. And I, I believe the Aries uh, Kevin has been cursed with rhyming from Apollo, which was mm -hmm. kind of fun. Uh, but this leads into sort of tension there and that uh, the Aries cabin is going to sort of stay out of the fight uh, the, that's going to be coming up soon, which is not great since they are basically the, the fighting cabin. Uh, and that's, that's all that's really in that chapter. But then it jumps into, I drive my dog into a tree. They also, um, sorry, they also uh, burn Beckendorf's uh, shroud, shroud, and there yeah. is a very sort of sad scene with that. Um, and so Percy, um, accompanied by Miss O'Leary, who is upset at Beckendorf's death, like Beckendorf <laughs> has been taking care of Mrs. O'Leary, um, you know, the giant hellhound <laughs> that <laughs> Percy inherited in the last book. Um, but 
we kind of get um, Mrs. O'Leary in the middle of this council of the Cloven Elders. They're talking about Grover. They're talking about the fact he's missing. Juniper, uh, Grover's girlfriend, is super concerned at the fact that Grover's been missing. Um, obviously, the the old grouchy satyr is just kind of having a heyday with it. Nico D'Angelo's also there. He's vibing. <laughs> he's just there. He's there. Um, and they kind of have a conversation um, after the fact of Grover is missing. Um, Percy and Nico have this conversation that, like, maybe it's time we kind of think about heading down to the underworld for this, like, secret plan we've been talking about. But the first thing you have to do is relive your your enemy. You have to understand where your enemy came from. And I think they, is this the chapter? Yeah. Um, never mind. This isn't the chapter they don't. They, um, they end up going to Connecticut to meet up with me, uh, to kind of see May Castellan, uh, Luke's mom, and kind of all the, like, things that happened with that. Um, which puts us in, my cookies get scorched. Yes. Uh, so they, they introduce a fun thing here that uh, sort of Hellhounds and Nico can do called Shadow Travel, which is sort of just kind of like teleportation. Uh, it takes a lot out of both of them, but they, they do this and they sort of warp themselves over uh, to make Stellan's house. And they sort of talk with her and try to get the, the lowdown of what happened. They see that she's sort of spacey. Her eyes are sort of glowy. Uh, she thinks that they're both Luke, but also at the same time knows that they're not. Uh, and we sort of get the picture that uh, something happened here that uh, Luke came to her at, at one point and asked for her blessing. And Nico then realizes, oh, I know what that is. Okay, Percy, we got to take you down to the River Styx, uh, which leads into the next chapter. My math teacher gives me a facelift. Nope, I, uh, my math teacher gives, gives me, me a lift, not a facelift. I don't know why I said face. <laughs> um, and we learned that there are uh, the doors of Orpheus, obviously, from the story of Orpheus, um, are in New York, specifically Central Park. So um, Percy and Nico and Mrs. O'Leary shadow travel that way. Find Grover. He's just been put to sleep by the god of sleep, Morpheus. Um, and Percy kind of discloses the plan to Grover. And Grover's like, that sounds like a bad idea, but okay. And uh, the moment they get down in there, they kind of see Mrs. O'Leary is happy to be back in the underworld. Um, but we learn that uh, we see, um, oh shoot, the creature that is, that obviously was Percy's math teacher way back in the first book. Um, <laughs> and uh, she snatches up Percy and takes him to Hades. I'm trying to make sure I don't go into the other, I think I went into another chapter, didn't I? Uh, not quite, not quite yet. Okay, uh, yeah, so she basically snatches up Percy and uh, we learned that Nico is delivering Percy to Hades to get information about his mother. I think that drops us into the next chapter, right? Uh, close, but I can take it from here. Okay, yeah, because I'm trying to find my page and I don't want to go too far. <laughs> no, you're fine. Uh, so uh, before, uh, at the, near the end of chapter eight, uh, Percy gets brought to Hades uh, with Nico and they sort of talk a little bit about uh, what's happening. And then uh, Nico gets a little bit more information. Uh, we find out he hasn't like fully betrayed him. He's just trying to 
you know get the get the best out of both sides before sort of continuing on uh we f we find out that uh the rest of the gods wanted to kill nico and his uh and their mother uh, along with um the now dead bianca however uh the hades was extremely against this and was angry uh but it was already prophesied by the oracle uh at this point so they were going out of their way uh the the mother is killed anyway uh, while the kids are taken away to the uh, Lotus Hotel. But this gets Hades extremely angry, and he then curses the Oracle to constantly be in the dead state that she is currently. This uh, Then Hades, after telling them this, says, okay, Percy, uh, I still scared of you. I'm going to lock you in my dungeon for a little bit. Uh, he gets locked away, leading into uh, Chapter 8. Sorry, I, I, I said Chapter 8 earlier. This is now Chapter <laughs> 8. Um he he dreams a little bit sees rachel she has a, like a, a tad bit of a prophecy uh then he dreams a little bit more sees a little bit more going on with the titans and then nico shows up and says hey i can put all these guards to sleep because i'm a hades kid uh i'm busting you out you're gonna go bathe in the river sticks so that's exactly what they do he jumps in there he has to think about where he wants his weak spot to be and where uh and something to sort of hold him to this mortal realm so he thinks about annabeth uh, and then he comes out functionally immortal. A, some guards attack him. He tests out his new powers and it just like melts through him like butter. <laughs> uh, which then leads into Two Snakes Saved My Life in Chapter 9. So, of course, we see that um, in their coming out of the underworld, uh, Percy had called Annabeth a couple of times uh, to kind of mobilize camp and get them into Manhattan, um, where they realize that the battle is getting ready to start they're going to have to start protecting Mount Olympus as quick as possible. Um, so Percy and this mob of, of um, demigods roll into the Empire State Building and they're like, listen, we've got to figure this out. They get up on Olympus and they realize the last Olympian kind of standing is, um, is Hestia. Um, she kind of gives Percy a vision um, because it's, she has the line of it's important to know, um, you know, where your, where your enemies come from. So she gives Percy the vision of when Talia and Luke found Annabeth, uh, back when they were all real young. Um, and then of course, uh, in comes Hermes, who is like, listen, if you want to talk to Zeus, you got to talk to me. Percy's like, okay. Uh, you guys should be back here. He insult him and Annabeth both kind of insult Zeus. Yeah. They're like, my Annabeth's like, my mom must know that this is a trap. Zeus is, is Zeus is Zeus blind? And Hermes is like, uh, ma'am, you might not want to say that. He's not blind or deaf. Please stop. So they end up splitting up the campers to kind of protect Manhattan, and they learn that the gods will not come back until the last possible minute. Zeus has ordered them not to leave. Um, so, uh, yeah, and I think that's about it. Yeah, we see that all of them have kind of split up to take care of Manhattan. Um, and Percy, I think this is, uh, we learn about uh, Daedalus's plan 23, in which all of the like weird statues throughout New York are actually like automatons and can just annihilate anything in their path, yeah. um, which is awful to think about. It, it's terrifying, really, but 
and we like learned it's that, the doctor who episode all over again oh my gosh yes and we learned that morpheus has put the entire island of manhattan to sleep yes um which of course chronos has slowed time around it so yeah that, and, and everybody just is screwed and cannot get in or out so right. nobody really knows what's going on in the mortal world right which of course leads us to chapter 10 i buy some new friends yes um there was a little bit of bleed in there on chapter 10 uh but there at near the end uh percy realizes after everybody split up and they've all planned things that the sea is sort of completely defenseless and he says okay i can go take care of that so he goes to the two minor sea gods that control those areas and use the sand dollar that he was given by poseidon last time sort of breaks it in half and gives it to them both as payment to sort of stop the assault from that uh from that side uh, and then as he leaves, Blackjack swoops in and Percy starts running away. Um, so of course we learn that the bridge is unprotected. Uh, the Apollo cabin's kind of falling behind. Um, so Percy and Annabeth swoop in and Blackjack and go to kind of cover the bridge. Um, they are, um, they end up fighting against the Minotaur specifically. Um, and we see Percy come head to head with Kronos, of course, as Luke. Yes. Um, and they really just, I mean, they go head to head. Percy has eliminated the army, but he's going against Kronos himself. Um, in, the, in the point of eliminating the army, um, Ethan Nakamura is going to stab Percy in the back. And <laughs> Annabeth dives and takes the knife for him. And, and Percy's like, get out of here. Um, Blackjack swoops down, takes Annabeth off. Um, and at the end of the chapter, uh, Percy ends up breaking the bridge, which leaves Kronos, obviously, in the rubble. Um, but it also takes the head of a Pablo cabin, Michael Yu, with him. Um, but before the trauma can really process, uh, Selena runs in and says, hey, Percy, come on, you need to come... Um, Grab a healer from Apollo. Annabeth is really bad off. Mm -hmm. Which puts us into Rachel makes a bad deal. Okay. So in this chapter, uh, we sort of, we go back to the, I think it's a hotel that they're staying in. Mm -hmm. At least that's what I imagined. And uh, they're sort of assessing uh, how they're doing. They're, they're trying to heal everybody up. Uh, Grover comes back, says that they've lost quite a lot on his side. Uh, Mrs. O'Leary is a little bit, a little bit wounded, but nothing too bad. Um, and then we're sort of, we're jumping through. Percy has another dream, uh, later on, or, or sorry, there's actually a scene with Annabeth I want to touch on first. Uh, so Annabeth is recovering. She's, she's basically had as much ambrosia and nectar as she like basically can. So like, they don't really want to do much. They had to, uh, they had the Stoll brothers go like grab a little bit of, uh, medical supplies, like mortal medical supplies to sort of heal them up. And as she's sort of recovering, Percy and them are talking. And she's like, hey, uh, why'd you uh, He's like, hey, why'd you dive in front of me? Uh, how did you know where my weakness was? She was like, I don't. Where is it? He shows her. And she goes, I just kind of felt like I needed to. I felt like something was pulling me in that direction. Uh, we also see Percy. He gets a little bit of a sort of flashback or I, I guess um, a dream that shows that Rachel has found this prophecy uh, that she's sort of came to her and that she has to go back to find Percy. So she is now flying towards Manhattan in a helicopter, uh, like as quick as they can. Uh, and at the very end of the chapter, a Titan 
uh, has come to meet with Percy on the behalf of Kronos. Mm-hmm. And it is uh, P-Boy. What's his name? I forgot his name. Is it, I know it's the, um, the one who was obviously punished. Yes, who brought fire. I, it's not yeah. Pythagoras. I know it's not him. <laughs> Prometheus. Br- there we go. Prometheus. Prometheus meets with Percy in this next chapter. He brought upon this mathematical theory. Yes. <laughs> um, we also, oh, I forgot to mention that also the hunters of Artemis cover for where the Ares cabin should be. Oh, yes. And, I forgot uh, to mention that way back. Talia so. shows back up. So, yeah. yeah. And Talia still has her punk aesthetic. Yes. I'm um, very glad of that. <laughs> Uh, in chapter 13, um, we kind of, we see the, um, these two, tit- uh, the Titan and Percy kind of have their dialogue, um, where they're like, listen, um, you have to understand that, um, we are not all bad, um, obviously you've met Calypso, you know that we're not all bad, um, we're offering you peace, don't let it come to this. And Percy's like, you literally want all of us dead. Like, what? And um, so um, Prothemus gives Percy a vision. And he sees um, kind of what left May Castellan to be the way she is. Um, and we see that Hermes tried to tell her, don't directly interfere. I cannot directly interfere, please. Um, they, of course, don't know um, that Haiti, it will learn later that Haiti is, has cursed the Oracle. But uh, we see that Makestelen is, that's the reason she has gone crazy. And uh, the rest of the scene, uh, we see that he also gifts him, Pan- gifts Percy Pandora's box. Um, which he is like, put this in a vault. I don't, I can't, don't tempt me with this. Um, and then they part ways, which puts us in course into Pigs Fly, chapter 14. Yes. Uh, so in chapter 14, uh, Percy gives another dream. It shows uh, Ethan Nakamura um, and Kronos talking. And Ethan's uh, like, or yeah, they're like, hey, uh, you, why'd you attack him? Why did she jump in front of him? Do you know where his weak spot is? And Nakamura's like, uh, no, I don't know. I was literally just attacking randomly. Uh, please, you gotta believe me. And Kronos is like sort of threatening him and being kind of a bit of a jerk. Uh, and then the dream sort of fades away with Percy sort of eerie that they're gonna find out how to kill him. However, one of the boars that uh, came in and saved them earlier on, these sort of like near invincible uh, boars, shows back up, but this is a female one, which means it can fly, uh, and it's sort of terrorizing the city. They can't really figure out how to kill it, uh, so Percy decides that the best way to do that is he flies to the on Blackjack, the Hermes statue, and wakes up that and two uh, sort of stone gargoyles tigers to try to take it down and successfully sort of dusts this thing the first time that's ever happened in history uh which is fun which then leads into the next chapter um in chiron throws a party uh we get the party ponies back full swing yeah um they roll in we learn about all the different like chapters of the party ponies (laughs) um at this point the demigods are kind of overstretched overworked they don't have a lot of ground they can kind of keep and the party party ponies make up for that um we also learned that they could get very drunk off of root beer, which just has them like floored. They're like, yeah, 
Um, really time to party here. Um, and uh, Annabeth kind of breaks it to Percy. Like, listen, even with the help uh, from the party ponies, we are still very overstretched. Like, we need to figure this out. Um, and he's like, listen, like, um, they kind of have a talk about Luke. Where he's like, he was evil before Chrono said you know it. He betrayed you and Talia so many times. Uh, but then Percy kind of blacks out and pops into the birthday party for one Bobby Earl. <laughs> um, where Dionysus is just vibing and playing Pac-Man. And he kind of has this talk with Percy just like, listen, um, we need you guys to defend Olympus. That's like the purpose of demigods. Um, and uh, Percy then obviously pops back into, you know, mentally back into where he was, oh. uh, realizes that his mom and Paul are down on the street asleep because he notices the hoof-dented Prius. Um, and then after dragging his family to safety, Percy realizes that there is a helicopter coming through. The pilot has passed out. And Rachel Elizabeth there is about ready to die. Um, which, of course, is when uh, Chapter 16, we get help from a thief. Yes. So Rachel shows up. Uh, she gets sort of whisked out of there. Uh, the, uh, the mortals in the helicopter are saved. Rachel's not asleep because of her sort of powers, I guess. Uh, meets Chiron. He goes, oh, do you have the gift of sight too? And then Percy's like, knowing what happened to May, he's like, Oh, no, 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 no. You're going to help her. You're not going to keep basically comatose her. Please save her. Um, and then Percy has a, a couple more fun, fun visions of basically just seeing that Kronos and Luke are sort of battling it out inside the body, uh, as well as uh, sort of that Nico is trying to win over the, his, uh, his parent to his side, as long as, along with uh, Demeter and Persephone as well. Which then uh, leads to a little bit more of the, uh, uh, them sort of like talking, talking with the group, trying to suss everything out. Them realizing that without the Ares cabin, they really don't have anyone that's going to be able to fight this down. Uh, so they sort of get ready and sort of try to prepare themselves for what's coming. Which leads into the next chapter, which is called... Uh, I can't figure it out, so hey, we take it away. <laughs> yes, thank you. Um... Which, of course, we see, uh, obviously, after Selena gets slammed by the, the, the draken, and we realize that she is obviously not Clarice. Um, Clarice kind of breaks down, and she's like, you were so stupid. How could you? We learned that Selena was the, the spy for camp. Yes. Um, and Clarice is immediately defending her honor. She's like, listen here, she died a hero. None of you guys best challenge that. And Clarice just goes to work <laughs> on like anything she can fight. She's ready to fight. Um, we learned that Chris was trying to talk her into going into battle and she just wouldn't. Um, and then uh, kind of Talia warns Percy like, hey, listen, we can keep going down here. But it's time, you know, like uh, the clock is counting down, like it's time to figure out what we're doing. So Percy, um, Percy and most of the demigods all vanish up into Olympus. Uh, 
we see the old goat that was bullying uh, Grover is now dead. Uh, Grover officially taking his spot on the council. Um, and then uh, Percy's decided, you know what? I know what I got to do. We got to get... Um, he Oh, he sees Hestia and opens up Pandora's jar and allows Hope to kind of live in the hearth with Hestia because that's where it thrives the most. Um, and uh, I mean, that's where we get the line that Hestia is the, uh, the last Olympian. Um, and Percy marches himself to Poseidon's throne, sits down on it, tries to get his attention. Both Annabeth and Grover are like, are you stupid? What are you doing? Oh my gosh, you're going to get dead. And Percy's like, listen, Dad, you gotta show up. This is the only thing I can think of. This is the only thing we can't, we can't win without other gods on our side. Um, and uh, yeah, we learned that, of course, the enemy is advancing and Kronos is leading it. And, and that leads us to chapter 18, My Parents Go Commando. Um, so in, in this chapter, there's... Uh... Chiron and Kronos are sort of duking it out a, a little bit, which is very fun. Then we sort of have, um, uh, they start to fight between Annabeth Percy and the sort of Luke-Kronos hybrid right now. Uh, but then Nico, Hades, and Demeter, and I think maybe Persephone, uh, mm -hmm. sort of swoop in and they uh, have decided to sort of fight with, uh, with everybody. Uh, but Kronos decides to, uh, so, so the battles are sort of starting to rage. Kronos to sort of like bring the rest of his strength, uh, starts dissolving the barrier around Manhattan, which is good and bad because the mortals keep waking up uh, now. And as everyone's sort of just trying to um, deal with what's happening, uh, Percy realizes, oh shoot, uh, my, my mom and Mr. Blofus are down there. I got to deal with that real quick. So uh, both of them wake up. Blofus doesn't really know what he sees, so he stabs. I don't know what he thinks he stabs. He stabs a monster with a sword he finds on the ground and goes, I hope that's a monster. So I think the man might have just, like, killed a kid in his mind. He did but murder. He did murder. Um, but uh, so they're all they're trying to get everybody to safety. Uh, meanwhile, Chiron gets pinned down uh, under some rubble, and Kronos sort of pops off for a sec. Uh, which then leads uh, Mrs. O'Leary also having to try to dig uh, Chiron out as Percy runs away, which leads into uh, 19, we trash the Eternal City. And so Percy, Grover, Annabeth, and Talia go back to Olympus um, because they realize that's where Kronos is heading after defeating Chiron. And um, we kind of get the scene that the city is falling apart, that, that Olympus itself is getting ready to dissolve. And um, and we see that Kronos is waiting on them. Ethan Nakamura is standing there as well. Um, he, um, I think he ends up dying. Um, yeah, he ends up turning on Kronos. Yeah, and Kronos just yeets him right off the building. Yes. Um, and so Annabeth decides to start talking to Luke Kronos. Um, because they, Kronos and Percy just start destroying thrones. Um, and they're hopping on them, trying to get dead, and it just doesn't work. And finally, in that, like, last week moment, Annabeth manages to talk Luke into himself. 
Um, she is trying, she's almost dead as well. And she's just like, Luke, you have to hear me. Uh, Luke manages to come through and stabs himself in the week's, his Achilles heel, which is his like hip, mm-hmm. like armpit or something. Um, and he has this really gross confession that he like is in love with that. Yeah, uh, I don't know. I think I'm gonna say admired, but it was kind of weird and gross. Yeah, it's weird and gross, and we'll talk about it. Um, it's like a five-year age difference, and at that, like at that age, it's not great. Right, right, right. Um, but we learn, of course, that Luke is the hero um, of the prophecy, and Annabeth's blade was the cursed blade, um, and that puts us into we win fabulous prizes. Yes. Uh, so everything's sort of getting wrapped up now. Uh, all the gods, including Hades, are on a, on a fun little gigantic pullout chair, um, are there and they go, hey, uh, Percy, thank you very much. They, they sort of honor everybody, uh, and they, uh, give them what they want. A uh, girl gets a seat on the council, and Abeth gets to help rebuild Olympus, uh, all this fun stuff. Uh, they go, hey, Percy, by the way, we're gonna make you a god. How does that feel? And he sort of, uh, like we said earlier, in parallel with uh, when Annabeth turns down um, the hunter's position, he turns down godhood and says, instead, I want you guys to try to be better with your kids, make sure that nobody goes unclaimed. I don't care if you don't know, you'll figure it out somehow, ask Apollo. Um, and they they sort of, he gets them to swear in the river sticks, which is something that's been yeah, like, oh, you didn't get me to swear on the river sticks for like the past couple books. So I, I thought it was nice that he remembered that and brought that <laughs> back in. Um, he gets Zeus a little angry at this, but they all sort of agree and go, fine, we'll be better parents from here on out. Um, which then leads into Blackjack gets jacked. Um, so we see as they're getting ready to leave Olympus, specifically him and Annabeth, they come up on Hermes and they kind of have this talk about Hermes, talk to Hermes. Um, He's like, you know, I, Percy's like, I thought you were a bad dad to Luke, but in learning more about Luke's history, I know you're not, and you couldn't have stopped anything. He died a hero, um, and he ends up meeting up with, uh, with Athena, as Percy ends up meeting with Athena as well, who is like, listen here, um, um, you know, why did you choose to stay mortal? And Percy's obvious answer was Annabeth. And he's like, and Athena kind of does the parent warning, like, you listen here. Don't <laughs> dare cross a line. I'll end you. Um, so they end up uh, down the elevator in which they realize that Rachel has stolen Blackjack and is heading to Camp Half-Blood. Obviously, to probably become the Oracle. Yes. Uh, which leads to chapter 22, I am dumb. Uh, so, uh, Percy's suspicions are correct. Uh, she, uh, she goes back to camp, and they go, uh, she's trying to become the new oracle, since the oracle doesn't have really a body uh, that's, like, you know, fit for oracling right now. <laughs> uh, he goes, but didn't Hades still curse that? You can't do that. You're going to die. You're going to end up, like, make a Stellan. Uh, but Chiron says, we think the curse might be lifted now that Hades is sort of like back in Olympus and everything's good. Uh, so they go along with the process. Uh, Apollo's there. He sort of like, uh, sacraments it sort of, 
and everything actually goes well. She's able to become the new um, Oracle, which means that she's going to have to sort of live at camp now, uh, at least uh, most of the time, and can't be with Percy anymore. Even though they weren't officially together, she sort of dumps him. Um, however, because of that, uh, things are open up between them, and Percy and Annabeth sort of go on a canoe and share an underwater kiss, okay. uh, which is kind of, I thought it was a cute scene. Mm-hmm. And then um, the last chapter, chapter 23, we say goodbye, sort of. Um, we kind of get the final for farewells for a lot of camp. We learn that they are building new cabins like crazy to, um, because ca- campers are getting claimed left and right. There's also a surge of campers showing up to camp. Um, we get a kind of heart-to-heart between Poseidon and Percy, in which we learn that a lot of the gods have thanked Poseidon, and he's like, you know, maybe they can change. Uh, that night at the usual uh, fire, um, they're all getting, they're all saying goodbye to the end of summer. They all get their beads, and Rachel spouts off a new prophecy, um, um, just basically setting up what will become the Heroes of Olympus series. And with that, that is the last Olympian. Woo, woo. That was, I don't know. Ooh, I just fell off my chair. I don't know what the runtime is on that. I can't see it, but it's <laughs> definitely a doozy. Um, but we've got a couple talking points to go ahead and get started with for this afternoon. Alrighty. When you're listening to this technically. Um, <laughs> and so I guess we'll just go ahead and kick off like we usually do. And I think our first place to probably start talking um, will be fate. Yeah, that sounds good. Um, obviously, with the prophecy at the end of the book, um, <laughs> and the prophecy that drives the book in the series, uh, we get to learn a lot. Um, there's a little bit of a, technically, Percy isn't the, the hero of the prophecy. No, he's, he's not, and it's, it's kind of confusing. The, for the, most of the series, we are told it's the kid of the big three, but when we are, like, listen to the full prophecy it just says that a hero with a big three is going to sort of start like is is going to like sort of be the catalyst here but they are not the hero specifically that is the turning point between like destroying the gods and saving them that is luke uh so this is this sort of acts as both confirmation of the fate that was always there and also a sort of twist at the end that it's showing that even if things seem like they're going this way uh, everything can always turn at the last minute and it's still as it's supposed to be, um, which I, I think is nice. I, I always like the ex- sort of the um, I, I sub, I'm not sure what you want to call it, the sort of uh, swerving away from prophecies. However, this series is always like heavily relying on like even in the end when the most like un- unexpected things happen, it fell into the prophecy. And I was curious on how they were going to do this uh, with this twist. I thought it was, I thought it was fun. I thought it was a nice sort of mix of both of them as, I mean, we're going to have our hour of hate later on Luke. Mm-hmm. However, uh, I even didn't think that that was the, the worst it could have been. Right. And we see of course that if the gods didn't come together, the fate would have been completely different. Mm-hmm. We also learn that if the gods had acted differently towards their children, their fate would have been a little different. Yes. Um, obviously, we kind of get that little bit of a conversation between Hermes and Percy, and we learn a lot in this book about Hermes um, and his 
really lack of control over what had happened with Luke. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, he couldn't be super super involved. He's a god, but he was as involved as he could be with Luke. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think for that overbearingness also sort of led to his downfall as well, right? And there's also the fact that it's the unreliability of the gods i think Mm -hmm. that also fuels this i mean obviously in characters like ethan um nakamaro who is never claimed he finds out on his own that he is a child of nemesis but he's never claimed at camp he was solely shoved into the hermes cabin and i think that's what fuels percy's kind of question or percy's uh request at the end of the book obviously is that luke's army would not have had the numbers it did if the gods had acted differently towards their children. I think that's the big push we see there. Mm-hmm. I, and I think we also see a little bit of blame from Luke about Mary. Blame from Luke to Hermes about what happened to, not Mary, May Castellan. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's sort of the, the whole thing that happens with May uh, to sort of sum up was that she tried to become the new oracle at one point because she also had the gift of sight. Uh, Hermes knew that it, it might not happen because of the curse, uh, but and because of that, it sort of went sour anyway. Mm-hmm. Luke blamed Hermes for this, even though he was sort of trying to stop her, and it was her choice fully. Mm-hmm. Um, I will also say that wasn't like he said that that was the excuse, but he also hated his mother for this sort of like the the disability that she had and she was uh left with after sort of taking this and it it wasn't like he hated to see her in pain or uh, and whatnot he just hated seeing her in general which i know i'm leaking <laughs> like i said back into the hate luke account but i think that is that is worth mentioning in this part of it here mm-hmm. and and I think this kind of adds to the domino effect of everything and that fate plays out the way it mm-hmm. will. We learn that the reason Hades curses the Oracle is because of the prophecy that she is given about the, the children of the big three being the demise of, you know, of Mount Olympus, which has led to Zeus killing the mortal he is in love with, that, that Hades is in love with the D'Angelo's mother. And it's the fact that his kids would never be welcomed that, you know, drives him to curse Mount Olympus. And and in, in turn, it is Percy's kind of recognition of this and request that all the, you know, all the gods welcome their, like, welcome all their kids, no matter what, to camp. Um, and I think Percy has a specific request that no kids go left, you know, go unclaimed. Mm-hmm. Um, which, of course, leads to this ability for Rachel to become the Oracle. Because um, we've been set up that she has the vision, she has the gift of sight into the, um, the demigod world. Um, and that she's had this interest in becoming the Oracle. She's had, obviously, these very uh, prophetic dreams um, and I think Chiron a little bit pushes that too. He's oh. like, ooh, a yeah, new like, oracle? Maybe. <laughs> Strokes his, his chinny chin chin. <laughs> um, but it, I think it plays into the fate because in this twisted, like, domino effect of anything, of everything, Rachel was 
sequentially allowed mm -hmm. to be an oracle or able to accept the position of the oracle of Delphi because of because Luke hated Hermes kind, kind of I, I think I, I think a better I think a better synopsis was that because because of the sort of hatred that Luke had both at Hermes and at his mother uh it sort of left the it sort of left Rachel to find this world because she never would have even been a part of it if Pete uh if Peter if if Percy did not run uh into her at the dam right I, I think that is that sort of embodies the whole thing of fate of a freak coincidence and slashing at a random mortal just so happened to be someone who can see through the mist just so happens to be somebody who is going to get the gift of sight later just so happens to be the person that is going to be the next oracle and i think that it, above anything sort of ties into that fate of just random things may seem like they sh they don't mean anything but it sort of has a ripple effect that'll go through and affect things later Indeed. and one big obviously plot point that plays into this book and that we kind of got the uh the allusion to in the last couple books has been the spy mm -hmm. um and we learned that it's selena which i think comes as a bit of a twist i don't think yeah i don't think anyone was expecting it she got a little bit more more book time in this however yeah. i don't think it was an immediate like oh it's got to be her they right. sort of they sort of uh, do something in it, which is that they kind of set up a red herring of it possibly being Annabeth. Mm -hmm. Not only does she have a lot of ties towards Luke throughout the novel, however, uh, she also knows Percy's weakness and asks in a strange sort of way that even Percy in the book questions and goes, maybe I shouldn't be telling her. It is a little bit of weird for her to ask this, but whatever. And it sort of sets this in your mind that maybe you can't even trust Annabeth, which is like a almost main character at this point. Mm -hmm. um and and i think that it's i think that the sort of twist there that you don't really know what's going to come up makes it the selena play oh i i'd say all the more satisfying i it, even though it was a character that we didn't really see much we got a lot of her in this book and we built a lot of off her character and also the relationship that she had both with uh beckendorf and with clarice mm -hmm. and i think that's also a point and i think we obviously see that Selena feels bad about being the, being the spy. The, the spy, especially after her being the spy leads to her boyfriend's death. Mm -hmm. It crushes her. Yes. And, and I think that that's... There's some really good foreshadowing on that in mm -hmm. this book. Um, in the, the War Council meeting, when Percy mentions the spy that's when selena breaks down mm -hmm. it's directly at, i mean there's like some subtle hints at it being selena and i think it does yeah. really well um it's we also learn that the reason selena became the uh the spy is because luke's disgusting yes luke <laughs> her too. we get that luke's kind of gross here he is manipulated yeah, being selena gross. into being the spy back when he was still at camp so we're Selena's probably like 17, 18 at this point, we're led to because obviously because Beckendorf was getting ready to go to college. Yes. So my guess would be like they're about the same age, 17. Yeah, 18. I, I think that's fair. That's a fair assessment. But this she has been the spy for three, four years at this point. But we've seen the fact that Luke has planted this for a while now. 
So Luke went to 14-year-old Selena and was like, hey, so I think you're really, uh, you're really swell. Uh, how about you become my spy? Because maybe, just maybe, me and you can fall in love. And Selena's like, okay. Wow, this Wait. older guy is super nice to me, and he's super... It just, it's it's gross. I'll also say, like, I don't know. I don't. Maybe it's just because of the, the the voice that I've had in my head for him. I haven't pictured Luke as an attractive man, but like, <laughs> it seems like that's what it's trying to get painted. I don't know. Well, I want to say in the first book that he was supposed to be like a pretty boy. Like okay. he was the like golden boy of camp. He's just been frat boy in my head. He's just been a frat boy wannabe the entire time. <laughs> but like the the classy frat boy, not the like basketball yeah. jersey f- frat yeah. boy. Um, but yeah, no, I think Luke was supposed to be set up to be the like this like suave, really pretty boy. Um, and obviously, we see he's great at manipulation and can pull the strings, and he knows when people feel certain ways towards him and he obviously uses that to his advantage um and we'll touch on luke he's going to be one of our characters for the end of the end of the episode but i guess we can go ahead and talk about kind of the queer coding we see yes yes so we're gonna we're gonna hop into our crap on on rick riordan for a hot second yes and i think we've talked about this in the last book as well specifically in clary's um We've seen in the last book, obviously, that Clarice has been very queer-coded from the, from the get-go. And for any of you that don't know, and in case we didn't touch on it last episode, queer-coding is when um, a character is wrote with very obviously queer attributes without actually being portrayed as queer. Um, I think one of the most common examples is uh, Sirius Black and Remus Lupin in the Harry Potter series. Um, we're giving a lot of very uh, kind of stereotypically queer personality traits and styles to these characters that are presented as straight characters. And as we see well that. As, the, yeah, sorry, go yes, for it. No, uh, as well as also uh, most of the time it's used when there are two characters that seem to have a relationship that it's like, it's just saying as like, oh, look at those, look at those good chums. But it's, it's like, it feels very relationship-like and it doesn't have like, something always feels off about it even to like and like the average reader they'll be like this feels a little bit weird and thus people see it as a relationship even though it is not canonically so mm-hmm. this is extremely apparent between selena and clarice at least especially we both feel that in, way. yeah especially in selena's death scene yes in the um, death scene it's oh boy like i just like one second let me see if i can find the chapter And I just want to, or the page, and just, like, this whole scene is so aggressively queer-coded. Because you you said off mic, and I'm going to call you out. You you got emotional at Selena's death scene. Yes, I did. Yes, I did. And it is good. It is a good scene. We see her last piece of heroicism. It's heartbreaking, because we see that Selena is just trying to right her wrongs. Mm -hmm. Um she has it in her mind that she is the reason that Beckendorf has died. She's in, you know, inexplicably why the Aries cabin hasn't go, like, hasn't been there. Like, her inability to convince Clarice to show up is the reason the Aries cabin isn't there. Mm-hmm. So she obviously steals 
Clarice's equipment. Um, but uh, but the reason that I feel like it hits uh, a lot harder for her is, like you said, she is sort of the reason that a lot of this is happening, and the only reason that they have the information that they do. But all, um, but also in these sort of like final moments, like Clarice had been like comforting her and like caring for her, and not not only then, but before this, there has been a a bond there. For instance, that said that uh, I believe that it was that Clarice came to her to, came to Selena for like relationship advice, and since then has sort of been acting like a bodyguard and following her around uh, her around everywhere. Right, and we see earlier in the book, in this book specifically, she is ready to annihilate anybody who even looks at Selena the yeah, wrong even way. even takes a step. <laughs> like, she is ready to body check Percy when Percy says something about Beckendorf. Um, but the scene right there at the, the beginning of chapter 17, right after Selena's been hit by the, uh, by the venom of the, of the draken, um, you know, uh, don't blame them, Selena said. They wanted to, to believe I was you. You stupid Aphrodite girl. You charged a, a, a dragon. why? And then that's kind of when we see Selena kind of, you know, it's my fault. Um, and um, Clarice immediately just starts crying. Like she, um, she's like, you're not dying on me. You're not allowed to. Um, and we just see Clarice shut down. And then, obviously, Clarice's way to deal with most things is to turn to anger. And she just, like I said in the review, she just starts annihilating oh, anything. at shit stuff. Going <laughs> at stuff. Um, she just turns and starts obliterating anything in sight. Um, and I think, to get back to the point we were making, there's obviously more than a friendship that's, like, laid between mm -hmm. these two. Especially because we get, we get how... Um, Clarice sort of deals with relationships because of the last book with these sort of like, I don't want to say hastily at it, but like the, the strange sort of like relationship that, uh, that her in the camper that sort of, uh, sort of went insane whilst in the maze. Um, we know how she really, uh, like reacts to this sort of stuff. And if you look at the relationship these two have, they track fairly closely. And mm -hmm. I, I would say, it's sort of a, a personal sort of belief in mine, but I, I do have a feeling that when Clarice went to Selena for advice, uh, previous relationship barred. Like, if, if those two weren't together, I would say it would be like, hey, Selena, let's let's just say I had a crush on a certain person, uh, possibly in your in your cabin. What would you say to do there? And sort of asking her for advice, like, for her. <laughs> the, like, roundabout way that you go yes. about talking it's about like, crushes. Oh, I have a friend who has a friend. I have friend a friend who, yeah. <laughs> they go to a different camp. Shh. <laughs> ah, are you talking yes. about yourself? No, 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 Why would you say that? No. Um, <laughs> I don't know what she's looking at. <laughs> Hello, Naomi. Naomi! Can you get down? Thank you. Can you go downstairs? Piss off. Go, go. Shoot. Okay, never mind. Get out of here, homophobic cat. <laughs> you war criminal! Um, anyhow. So I guess we'll go ahead and move away from our our anger at the queer coding here um, and kind of talk about the mortality um, yes. that we see throughout this book. Obviously, as we just talked about, um, we get a lot of death in this book. 
Rick Riordan is not afraid to just murder some people. <laughs> which we've seen, that, we've seen that a little bit in the last book. We got like Lee Fletcher who died in the last book. And uh, the one son of Dionysus who also dies in the last book. But in this book, we get a lot of death. We get we are immediately thrown in the face of Beckendorf's death. And we're already kind of set up to kind of like his character, to be a little bit closer to his character than we were to either of the deaths in the in the Battle of, of the Labyrinth. Um, and then obviously we get Selena's death, which is heart-wrenching. Um, and we and also, I mean, Luke's death could be seen as pretty bad if you didn't hate Luke. Yes, you did despise <laughs> the, the um, darn dude. But morality is seen in different places as well. In the near-death experiences, um, and in the, the invulnerability that both Luke and Percy kind of take on here. Um, so I guess that's kind of where I want to start, is um, kind of in this invulnerability, they pick one place that they are vulnerable. And I think it's very important in what it, say, what it says about these two characters. Luke's is somewhere that only he could reach. Mm-hmm. There was no way to accidentally hit the place that he had chosen as his Achilles heel in battle. So this kind of gives us this idea that he was going to be his own demise one way or another. And then obviously Percy's being, the, being his back it says a lot about his, um, his fatal flaw. Uh, for a man whose fatal flaw is loyalty Somebody would literally have to stab him in the back to kill him. And I think it just shows that, you know, to kind of get a little philosophical here, I think it shows that your vulnerability says a lot about where you choose to be invulnerable. Mm -hmm. Um, And I also think that, I I think it's fair uh, bringing up that the only person that sort of gets close to accidentally killing Percy with this is Ethan Nakamura, who had sort of stabbed him in the back uh, in the previous book whilst in the maze, in the labyrinth. Right. Well, and I I think, uh, I like that you brought that up because I didn't think about that in the same way. Um, I thought of it as the people you accidentally stab in the back. Oh, okay. You don't, obviously, uh, Ethan being the child of, of Nemesis, there is a balance in life. Mm-hmm. And I think for as often as you try to protect people, there's also people you unintentionally hurt. Mm-hmm. That's how I read it. But I do like your reading of the fact that he did already stab Percy in the back once. It might not have been full force, but that's Ethan is ultimately what causes Kronos to rise. Yes. Um, and we also see that Percy's vulnerability leads to Annabeth's almost death. And at the same time, Luke's vulnerability leads to an emotional turmoil in Annabeth. She has to talk Luke through killing himself. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's it, that whole scene is a lot there. It, it, it was. Um, but I guess, uh, I mean, we already really hit on the, the mortality of the fact that we are just smacked in the face of death in this book. Yeah. Um, I don't know that there is a segment. I also think there's a lot of um, kind of bartering with mortality as well. Mm-hmm. Obviously, with the river sticks and with, you know, taking on the curse of Achilles, but also with Nico. 
Um, we see him and Bianca get into a fight, which is odd to think about. Ghost Bianca yelling at her brother. <laughs> um, but he's trying to summon their mother. He just wants to talk to their mother. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's just like this back and forth you do with morality. And I think that is, morality as a whole is shown in, uh, or mortality um, is shown in Nico's character in this book, obviously, because he is the son of Hades and death kind of circulates around him. But at the same time, we see him actively trying to communicate with people who've passed. So. Um, but yeah. Do you have anything to add on mortality? Uh, I really got philosophical there. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I think you pretty much covered it. You did a pretty good job there. The my one philosophy one hundred one class is really showing <laughs> up here today. Uh, quarantine will do that to you. <laughs> yeah. Um, we you got go nothing ahead. else to do. All right, time to like open your third eye and get see real introspective. <laughs> Um, but we'll go ahead and talk about characters. Yes. And I guess I already touched on Nico, so I think we can go ahead and start with Nico. Okay. Um, Nico. Is, oh, go for it. I've already done my rambling. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Nico is a fun character. I already said that I liked. Uh, I liked him. I I didn't like him as much in his inception. Uh, however, in the most recent book, I think that he did a lot of sort of both personal growth and. Uh, just it was a very fun character in general in this one it is interesting because he is supposedly his fatal flaw is holding a grudge Uh, but in this he's still he's still sort of clinging on to uh, like we said summoning his mother and he wants to talk to these people that have already passed on but he's still trying to grasp them as if as if they were still with him Uh, and Bianca's trying to hold him back from sort of seeing what the scene that happened because he feels that she feels that he's going to be angry at the rest of the gods and sort of turn against them since they killed his mother and tried to kill him and his sister. Um, uh, While also sort of trying to protect him from seeing that Hades is the one that sort of hurts and curses the, um, the Oracle of uh, Delphine. So uh, doing this, he sees these things and he's like a little bit angry, but he doesn't, he doesn't like lash out what he does is he helps he still helps percy and sort of shows him how to defeat chronos and doesn't turn his back on the gods and i think this is really interesting because this is and i won't say that he's overcome it because it's i feel like this is a little early there's a lot more books he may show up in those but i feel like he's kind of the first person that we've seen sort of overcome their sort of fatal flaw he is fairly self-sufficient in these and like he knows that he can't get angry he knows that he can't let it overcome him and he's able to even convince his father the king of holding a grudge to sort of help out his family that is in need and even though it is for a little bit of selfish reasons he still does it and manages to sort of get him out there and fighting i agree although i would say um that nico's fatal flaw in my mind is like a similar like string is holding a grudge I think mm-hmm. Nico's fatal flaw is just holding on to things. That's um, that's fair. That's fair. Um, because it's it's almost like he obviously he's clinging to the fact. Um, we see him in the last book clinging to Bianca's death, um, and in this book we see him clinging to his mother's death, just trying to figure out what is happening. And I mm-hmm. think I do like this idea that Nico is the first and really the only 
kid we see come over his fatal flaw. Um, because, I mean, just a little, we never see Percy and Annabeth really come to terms with either of theirs. They're both well aware of it, but I don't think we ever get the moment that they overcome their fatal flaw. Mm-hmm. Actually, a little bit of a, a hint of a spoiler, later in the series, their fatal flaws are what really almost kill both of them. Rough. And um, I think it's an interesting take that we see that Nico is the one that's really overcome his own kind of fatal flaw. Um, but we'll go on over to Selena. Um, and we really already touched on her a little bit too. Um, just talking about just her identity and stuff. And I think it's very, she is probably one of the most heartbreaking characters in this book specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, because we see that she feels so much guilt in this book. Um, for the death of her boyfriend, for the death of the other campers, for the things that are going wrong. But she also has this fear that, I mean, obviously Luke is threatening her, and now Kronos is the one that's threatening her. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you either feed me information or you die. And she's trying, you know, she kind of explains it a little bit. She's trying to work around giving him the, you know, the least amount of information as possible. But ultimately... Yeah, it's There's nothing she can. Uh, she mm-hmm. sacrifices herself to make up for it, yes. I think. And and she also she she is a uh, camper of Aphrodite. We don't know her fatal flaw, but I, judging by her parent, I would assume it's something about wanting to keep up appearances. Um, and I think that that goes into she didn't want people to know that she was uh, the, the spy. She didn't want to be remembered for that. So even when she was this deep in, she feared that she would be sort of like shunted and outcast at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, it, I think it was really touching when they said that like whenever someone was like, I heard a rumor that she's a, they were shushed. And they, were just, they all basically agreed not to talk about that, just to... Mm-hmm let it be water under the bridge. And I, I, I thought that was really nice. I, that was one of the things that sort of got me a little teary-eyed in the scene. <laughs> well, and I think we see that a lot in this book. Specifically, Percy does that a lot, too. Mm-hmm. Um, we see him obviously call for the shroud of, um, for Ethan. And we see him call for a shroud for Luke. Mm-hmm. Um, which, I mean, it, it's Greek tradition um, to burn um, kind of a in my mind, I always see it as a cloak, almost, mm-hmm. uh, that represents this, the, the person, that, the hero that has been lost. We see them, obviously, they burn shrouds at the end of the Battle of Labyrinth for the Lost Campers. We see Annabeth getting ready to burn Percy sh- uh, um, Percy's when he, almost, when they think he dies. And I think it says a lot for the characters we have in this book that they are willing to overlook... Ethan almost murdering Percy, him being the one that brings Corona, you know, brings Kronos in. And then obviously all the things that Luke has done, they overlook that to honor them as heroes because ultimately, I think it, it also goes in a little more into Percy's fatal flaw, that he just wants to see the good in everybody as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really enjoy the fact that they just immediately, they're like, Selena will not be remembered as as the spy she was you know this absolute um powerhouse of a person who is trying her best yeah um and i guess that opens up our final topic here (laughs) of time to crap on luke (laughs) oh 
Let's bring I... this dude okay. in. He's here for a whooping. <laughs> I have been okay. to rant about this, specifically this part of Luke, the entire series. Go for it. Your time to shine. Um, oh my god. The disgusting fact that Luke, you know, who's roughly seven years Annabeth senior five seven somewhere in the area something like that a gross amount he was of, 17 when she was 12 yeah five years there's a gross age difference between him and Annabeth and the whole scene at his death of him being like did you ever have feelings for me that is disgusting it's such a weird thing to say it was, it was different when it was Annabeth being you know attracted to Luke because in my mind that's that like childish kind of like you know you know, as a kid, the one, yeah. you know, the cool high schooler who would talk to you on the bus, or, like, maybe it was, like, a friend of your older sibling who, like, was just cool with you. That's different. At 12 years old, Annabeth, it's okay that she is crushing on a 17-year-old Luke. But for older Luke to reciprocate, those, to imply mm -hmm. a reciprocation of those feelings, that's disgusting. Um, we also openly get the fact that he manipulated um, Selena mm -hmm. and her emotions and her attraction to him. Like I said earlier, there is still a considerable age gap between the two of them. Um, most likely it was 17, 18 year old um, Luke and 14 year old, 13 year old Selena. That's still disgusting. It's, like, it's oh gross. my gosh. That's and like when you see that gross, like, senior in high school dating a middle schooler. That's this equivalency here. It's, just, it's yeah. And, like, e even even if they were the same age here, I, I think it's important to, he's just, he's just using the feelings that he has for these people to sort of manipulate and bring them, uh, so, sort of bring them to what he needs. I Even in the final moments, I think Luke didn't want to be uh, remembered as a sort of, like, bad traitor so he tries to evoke these feelings after doing the quote-unquote right thing uh in in annabeth just make her feel this way about him just one more time before he goes and i think even that is manipulative and sort of selfish in a way oh yeah luke is also like like you had mentioned earlier we see that luke is like really hates his mother for her disability Obviously, this woman has no control of, and I understand that it might be frustrating, but the hatred Luke holds yeah. for his mom, who's just trying to do her best, and the hatred he holds for Hermes, who can't do any better. Like, there's nothing else that he could do for Luke. Yeah. I think we, um, I think we said this earlier, but it, this book truly cemented it. Uh, he punched holes in his walls. Oh yes, yeah, Luke definitely like, punched holes in his walls, and like, yeah. like, oh, like he's the kind, he's the kind of dude that would like cuss out his mom mm -hmm. with his friends over just to show that he had dominance over a situation. Yeah. Shut up, mom! I asked for animal crackers. Right, right, right. Like the like that kind of vibe. Like yeah. Luke also would have beat like the crap out of his high school girlfriend like that's just like the vibe of luke yeah it's not it's not great it's not great at all like i said i have been waiting for his <laughs> death scene to talk about this because it is a spoiler a little bit the fact that yeah he, the kind of way he 
tries to get this emotional reaction out of Annabeth. It's disgusting. Mm -hmm. um, Luke is probably about 22 in this book, just about, like 21. Yeah, okay. yeah. Um, Annabeth is 16. Discomfort. There's a lot of discomfort that comes into that that makes me it makes me very uncomfortable to think about and yeah ugh. anyhow uh that's the that's our luke rant Woo! <laughs> um but i guess like we end all of our episodes um, mvp lvp yeah uh, i can go first if you would like go for it we'll start with lvp you want to take a guess who it's gonna be <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, maybe Beckendorf? Right, right, no. Yeah, no, it's Luke. For all the yeah. reasons that I previously explained, uh, though, I have a lot of hatred for Luke. And the fact that they, Rick Riordan tries to give him a redemption arc in this is gross. Mm hmm. But, yeah, this is a Luke hate account. <laughs> <laughs> uh, to you. <laughs> yes. Um, so mine was going to be Luke, uh, but then I quickly realized that that was going to be yours. So I, I've been thinking on the fly here. So I'm going to say that as much as I sort of like the dude, I think that this is... It, actually, hold on. I'm, I'm restructuring this on the fly. So <laughs> I can see your brain of, working. Yeah. Get, get rid of that bit. Um, I think that my LVP, it's going to be uh, two individuals uh, oh. in general here. Um, and so I'm going to say, I've done it again. I'm sorry. I, I, I flipped for the this? third time. This is a record third flip here. I know. Usually you get to. Yeah. You, usually usually I, I have these well in advance, but they really, Luke is the obvious sort of pick for LVP here. Um but LVP for me, decided, final, is Poseidon. And oh. this is for an interesting reason here. So sure, sure, he helped turn the tides of the war, no pun intended. Uh, and he was able to help save the day and all this. However, dude had one of these little, like, um, sand dollars uh, that when used and when given to these other two minor gods was able to clear the entirety of pollution in those bodies of water. And this man, and this man hasn't done that for the rest of the water. I'm sure you got a couple of those. You're a god. Clean it up. This man can actively stop Pan's death and clean some <laughs> water. And yet he's like, nah. I'll give you. I'll give it to my son and not worry about it at all. This is Poseidon. You can do better. You should do better. <laughs> I'll give. I thought you were gonna say Zeus because Zeus is like ignoring the Council of Athena. That's also that's the, Zeus the, is also a fair pick. If I'm being honest, He's I think also if I if I'd pick anybody outside of Luke, it would have been Zeus because Zeus is like. Athena's like, hey, man, you realize this is a trap. And Zeus is like, yeah, but that doesn't mean you're not leaving. So, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then, I guess, MVP. My MVP is, I don't know. Um, my gut feeling is to say Will Solis because I just love him. <laughs> okay. We get him for, like, a page or two. Um, he's he does heal Annabeth, so he I'll does give you that. Annabeth. And she's an um, integral to the end. Uh, but actually, my MVP is going to be Selena. Uh, 
unless I took yours. Is, is Selena going to yours? No, go ahead. Go. For okay. Um, I would I would say probably my MVP is going to be Selena. Um, for all the reasons we've talked about already. Yes. Um, that's she has so much guilt over the fact that she was the spy for Kronos. Um, she walks headfirst into her death. She knows that there is no way that she's going to defeat the Draken, but in her mind, her sacrifice is necessary to get the, the Ares kids from camp into the battle. And the fact that she is just wholeheartedly ready to die mm -hmm. um, if it means righting her wrongs. So. And to you? Um, my MVP, I'm I think, and this is also, this is a strange pick, I know. My MVP is going to be Apollo. Okay. Um, okay, so, and this one's going to need a little bit of explanation. So, Apollo, this book is, ex this book is extremely reliant on the main sort of prophecies in, in this. Mm -hmm. Apollo's whole thing is prophecies, along with also being healing. Um, and so I think that not only that, but like his sort of, his sort of role of being the god of prophecies is important uh as well as he is he does the hilarious thing at the beginning of cursing the entire um area area's cabin to only do rhymes and i respect the heck out of that but i think it is extremely <laughs> funny that he did that uh he also by getting this sort of chariot of apollo it sort of uh fosters in the sort of conflict of the Ares cabin not coming in and i think that's important to balancing out the fight He's also there and sort of brings about the new um, Oracle of Delphi, which I, I think is fun. So while he's not the most like present character, I think his character is fun. And I think that anytime he ever shows up, it is either a really cool scene or a really funny scene. Mm -hmm. So for that, I'm going to give MVP to him. That's so <laughs> indirectly, you're giving it to Wilson. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. Um... <laughs> or indirectly, you gave it to Apollo. That is true um <laughs> anyhow um but that will be all for um this week's episode so okay. next week we are going to be starting on the second percy jackson series mm -hmm. so that'll be fun uh, i'm so excited to start this one um i'm warning you now the first book is rough it, yeah. it throws you a little bit okay um it's it's pretty good though um okay. so yeah so next week we'll be reading lost hero which is the first installment of the Heroes of Olympus series, which is a continuation of the Half-Blood Chronicles, which technically encompass Percy Jackson. Isn't that a mouthful? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Rick Riordan. Yay. Um, but thank you guys so much for listening. We'll catch you soon. Bye. Listening to The Classroom, a Unity 2 production. Feel free to tune into our parent station, 91.7 FM of Morgantown, West Virginia. There's going to be a new episode of The Classroom live on Unity 2 every Friday at 11 a.m. And if you are out of our terrestrial reach, feel free to stream Unity 2 at unity2themoose.com. Easy enough, right guys? On our homepage, not only will you be able to stream new alternative music, but you'll also be able to quickly find our podcast and many other great ones produced by some of our friends. Thank you guys so, so much for listening and catch you guys soon.